give your special attention this morning to God's word. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is not darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikath, your king, and Kiyun, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves. And I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather this morning, the first morning of the week, we come not because our hearts or our hands or our lives are clean. We don't come because we're worthy to come, but we come because you invite us. We come because you purify us. And we come because the promise is there that as we hear and believe, you will transform our lives. God, we long to know and to worship the one who made us, the one who redeems us. Pray this morning that you would change us by your word. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be glorifying in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were to imagine heaven to your own liking, what would be there? Would it be the grandest of foods, right? Those delicious desserts you get on your favorite holidays? Would it have all your favorite things in this life? Would there be your lost loved ones, right? Some of your favorite experiences relived. No more pain, no more death. What would it be like? Perhaps nature galore for all of you Black Hills folks. In that heaven, would the Lord, the God of hosts, be there? If he wasn't there, would you care? See, in Western Christian culture, especially among aging generations, there is this felt ache of heaven or for heaven, right? We've had decades of sin under our own belt or living in it, and we long, we long for heaven. The evil are too wicked. The world has gone crazy. Sin is out of hand, we think. Indeed, we're we're right in that thought. And perhaps we just say, I just want to go to heaven. Now, this is not a bad desire, but we must examine our hearts with such a statement. Does our desire for heaven match our desire to simply be with God? Is God the prize of heaven? Or if God were not there, was not there, would you be satisfied? These are questions I want us to think about as we begin. Do I want to be with God? Is God the prize that I want to live for? Do I love God and do I love the things that God wants me to love? 
Or do I perhaps love looking like I love God? Do I love the approval of mom and dad when I look like I love God? Do I just love the feelings that I feel when I sing that song about loving God? Do you love what you believe God can give you, but not the God who gives? Perhaps you don't know the answer to each of these questions that I've rifled off at you. Or perhaps even in hearing it, you're aware that your love is divided for God. Or perhaps you're aware that your love, or rather that you are devoid or lacking of love for God. Or perhaps without realizing, you are even deceived thinking you have loved God, but more so you've loved the things that you get in saying you love God. Now whether you know the answers to those questions or not, God does, right? The God who made us knows our hearts in and out. He sees how true our worship is and nothing escapes his eyes. And this is so obvious from our text today. We're jumping into Amos 5, and you maybe have not studied Amos. People don't like to spend a lot of their personal reading in the Minor Prophets. But the book of Amos, just as some background for you, is about this prophet, or actually he was not a prophet, nor even the son of a prophet. His name was Amos, and he was from Judah, from a southern kingdom. And God called him to go up to the northern kingdom, Israel, because this is after the kingdoms have separated due to the sin of Solomon, which was great. And God calls Amos to go up and say to them, Israel, though you live in peace, though you are incredibly wealthy, though there seems to be nothing wrong in your purview, it is not a sign that God is blessing you. Actually, it's a sign that God is about to curse you. It's the message of Amos. And he's speaking to Israel, saying, you believe that everyone else is going to be judged except you. And so the reason why they will be judged is though they have peace and affluency and all these outward religious things, they have trampled the poor. They have neglected those in need. They have ignored true religion of the heart. They haven't repented, and so their judgment is sure. And so Amos comes calling them to repent, to bring their hearts, their hands, and their lives to God, because if they do, God will relent. That's why Amos is coming. He says, your judgment is sure unless, unless you come back to the Lord. And so that's what's happening in Amos 5. And our text in specific is actually dealing with something that should be very near and dear to our hearts. Worship. God is speaking about their worship today. And so there's three things that we're going to see that are exposed about their worship and we need to take to heart. It's that their worship is, one, divided. It's divided worship to God. It's two, it's devoid of real love for, for God and for neighbor. And three, it's deceived. It leads them to believe that they will receive salvation and not judgment from God. So there's some alliteration for you as well. It's divided, it's devoid, and it's deceived. And so considering this, we must learn that God sees how true our worship is. And therefore, we must truly love God. God and neighbor. I'll say it again. This is the main idea. God sees how true our worship is. So we must truly love God and love our neighbor, not simply look like we do. So I'm going to do something slightly unorthodox, not in theology, but just in the order of the sermon today. Uh, The way that it's ordered, the last two verses uh, get to the heart of the matter. And the first two sections, or last three verses rather do that, but the first two sections somewhat explain the outputs 
of what a heart that does what you see in 25 to 27, um, what that leads to, rather. And so I'll hear from Pastor Luke if that was okay tomorrow when he gives me feedback. Um, So look with me as we go to verses 25 through 27. Here we see that the Lord sees how divided our worship is, so we must truly love God by uniting our love upon him. So look at verse 25. What Amos is doing here, or God is doing, is he's pointing to Israel's well-known past, their history. You see, many centuries before, God had delivered Israel out of slavery, right? They were still a united people, albeit slaves, in Egypt. And God had brought them out, and he brought them to the edge of a promised land, a land that he said was going to be theirs. But they were afraid, and they didn't trust God. And so God said, fine, you will not have this land. Instead, you will go out into the desert, into exile, and there you will die. That was God's judgment on his people. Now, the question that the Lord asks in verse 25 about sacrifices and offerings, or we could say worship, it isn't necessarily answered in the book of Numbers when they're wandering about. It doesn't detail all of their worship. But what we do have an account of in Numbers is that they were faithless. They did worship idols. They did worship other gods. And so whether that answer in verse 25 is yes or no, it's likely no, they didn't worship the God, but whether it's yes or no, in those 40 years, what we should gather is that their worship at best, at best, was divided. That's what he's drawing their minds to. And so in verse 26, the Lord is saying to Israel, you are more like that faithless generation that was wandering about in the desert. Israel in Amos's day, so this is who Amos is speaking to, they were making their own images of Babylonian and Assyrian star gods. That's where we get that Sikath and Kiyun, right? And so the Lord is pointing out to Israel's offensive inconsistency, right? He says, you say you love me, you say you worship me, but you are making images of the stars and worshiping them. And you live as if they will save you, as if they will satisfy you. And so in verse 27, the Lord tells them what? He says, as long as you continue in divided worship between me and between idols, the only thing you can expect is the same outcome as that generation in the past, the one you remember, exile, away from the Lord, and death. A divided heart or love is so offensive to God. Some years ago, there was a video leaked of this NFL coach Uh, who was dancing in a place he probably shouldn't have been with a woman who is not his wife. And this video went out into the world, and the sports world, ESPN and all the like, were set ablaze debating about this. They debated in the sports public square, should he be fired? Shouldn't he be ashamed? Right? Shouldn't his wife leave him? They asked, coach, how can you say you're a leader worth following, right, if you have such divided loves in your life? How can you say you're a family man, a Christian? How could, you be so in, uh, how could you be so inconsistent or divided in your allegiances? What's shocking about the debate that took place is that in a world, even the sports world, which glorifies adultery, right? All the television shows and all the media in the world which glorifies adultery, they hated the inconsistency of this Christian coach's life. If the world, in a moment of clarity, can hate such inconsistency and divided love, how much more does the God who made us not to be divided, not to be inconsistent, how much more does he hate 
divided love, divided worship. Divided worship is no worship at all. And so as we look at this text, part of the question comes to us. Does the, Lord see, does the Lord see our worship? Yes, but does he see that it's divided at all? Is our love divided between him, him and idols? Now, whenever we say idols, it's always an interesting thing to say idols to Westerners because the last time you sat at home whittling a statue to then bow down to it was probably never, right? And that's because that's not what idols are, right? Martin Luther, he said that an idol was anything that we expected to get good from. As in, whatever we expect can provide for us or satisfy us in and of itself. In essence, when we begin to look to something, to get from something what only God can give to us, satisfaction, security, joy, hope, we have then made that thing an idol. We've worshipped that thing. Now, it doesn't believe that, or it doesn't mean rather that I believe my smartphone or my television made the stars in the sky, no. But perhaps I do believe it can satisfy my soul at the end of the day. That's how I treat it. Perhaps I don't believe that my bank account made the oceans, but I do believe that that's what gives me true security. That bottom line in my bank account. Sure, I know my loved ones didn't create light, but perhaps that's who you look to for purpose, for security, for value. It doesn't matter if you look to ice cream, to a scenic view in the hills, a relationship with your spouse, or significant other or child, a collection of stamps, or spending hours in your favorite place. If you look to those things to give you what only God can give you, you have made that into an idol. Right? All these things are good things, right? Retirement savings are good things. But when we make those good things God things and look to them for security, we've begun to worship something else. We've begun to be divided in our worship as, as Israel was. And again, the only expectation for such divided worship is exile, is being away from God. So God sees this in full. In truth, when you begin to think on, think on this, there's a reason why... Uh, past reformers, they're always talking about idolatry, or that the first commandment is to love God and God alone, because we are so quick to love something else and to look for life in something else. And in truth, we need someone whose love and worship is never divided. Someone who can actually represent an undivided worship in heart to God. We'll get back to that in a minute. But as those who are plagued by sin, what does this look like for us when we realize we have divided loves? Well, we, we just practiced it, and we should practice this every day. As those plagued by sins, we confess. We simply, we agree with God. Yes, I have loved another. I have been divided. We name our idols, and we confess them to sin, as sin to God, and then we ask God to do something. We ask God to unite our love on him, to unite our love. So just as a practice this week, just pause for a moment and think about in your day, what do you look most forward to in your day? What do you look most forward to in your week? Right? When you don't get that thing, right? When you put the children to bed and they wake up and you realize you've lost the thing you've been waiting for all day, you might be treating that like an idol. Or that vacation gets canceled that you've been 
right, preparing for, planning for, saving for, you might be treating that like an idol. So what is that for you? What is it that you say, without this, life wouldn't be worth living? After acknowledging that, confessing it, saying, God, that's sin, we pray Psalm 8611. Psalm 8611, great little line at the end. It says, unite my heart that I may fear your name. Unite my heart. Ask God to unite your love, your heart, on God alone. So it's the first two sections, or the first three verses there in 25 to 27. But move up with me in the latter because we begin to see what does God hate about what they do? And it's coming from an idolatrous heart. Well, verses 21 through 24, we see that the Lord sees how devoid, that's lacking, that's what that means, lacking of love their worship is, our worship is. So we must truly love God and our neighbor and not just talk or look like we do. Now, if the God who made all things and everyone who says that he is love himself, right, if he says he hates something, we probably want to pause and just wonder, what, what do you say you hate, God? And he says he hates their feasts, sacrifices, and songs. In other words, he hates their public worship, their public worship. Public worship is what we're doing here, right, as we're gathered. This is public worship on the Lord's Day nonetheless. So the feast referred to their religious holidays that God commanded them to have, where they gathered to celebrate God's past victories. The sacrifices in verse 22, they also were commanded, regulated, if you will, by God. The burnt sacrifice dealt with sins. The grain offering was a a thanksgiving sacrifice to God. The peace offering was meant uh, to feed the priests and your family, and this was meant to show devotion to God, but also communion with others. And the songs they sing, what did they sing? Well, they likely sang the psalms, right? The the very scripture that God had given them in prayers. So they're doing and coming in the way that God has regulated. And what does God say about it? I hate it. I hate, I despise your feast. I cannot stomach your sacrifices. Your songs are like banging pots and pans. I won't listen. Wow. Why? You see, it's not that they aren't passionate about their worship. In Amos chapter 4, verse 8, Amos says, God says to them, you love to worship, Israel. You love it, right? So it's not about their passion or their desire to worship, but it's two things. One, their lives in public worship are devoid of or lacking real love for God. That worship that they come to do in public worship, it's about them, The singing voices, the passionate prayers, the religiosity is meant to say something about them rather than God, right? God says to them, he calls them your feasts, your sacrifices, your songs. You see, their worship is not about God. Their worship is for themselves. And two, the second thing that's wrong is their lives outside of public worship is also lacking love for neighbor. And Amos stresses in terms of justice and righteousness among the people. You see, in an arid desert-like climate of Israel, the most significant resource you could have is what? Water, right? Without it, there's no growth of vegetation, sustainment of animals, livestock, people. But then notice what Amos relates water to. Justice, like rolling waters. Righteousness, like an ever-flowing stream. 
Without water, there is no life. Without justice and righteousness in the people of God and to their neighbor, there is no worship. God hates their worship because it's devoid of the thing that makes worship true. Sincere love for God. Sincere love for neighbor. Here in Amos, justice is dealing with righting wrongs and punishing or stopping evil. And righteousness is emphasizing not just right living within you yourself, right, and following God's commands, but it's righteousness applied even to others, right, making things right in general, loving your neighbor as yourself. So in Amos, both things are emphasized in relation to the poor, the neglected, the underrepresented, and the unthought of. Now, so loving and worshiping God requires loving our neighbor, not forgetting about or being indifferent towards or ignoring them. Uh, my family and I, we lived overseas for a number of years uh, in an, uh, a predominantly Islamic country. And every year, I think it may have just started, unless I've got my dates wrong, they had a certain celebration where they'd sacrifice animals, uh, a sheep or a cow. And they would do this, and the meat would be distributed to their family or to those in need, perhaps, if there was leftovers. But the holiday was meant to commemorate when God had provided a ram in place of Isaac. Right? Remember that story in Genesis 22 where God tells Abraham, sacrifice your only promised son? And it's, he's doing it to test Abraham's faith. Well, Abraham gets there and God provides a ram instead of Isaac. And as Christians, we see this story and we're like, yeah, just the way that God provides a lamb of God for us. That we may not die for our sin, but one steps in, right? We can see a Christian tie in that story. But what was clear to my family when we lived overseas is that everyone loved to celebrate this holiday. Families gathered, there's so much joy, prayers were seemingly prayed, extra food sometimes given to the poor. But no one really knew why this was worship to Allah. They didn't understand what it was really for. Their feast, their public worship day was actually devoid of love towards their God and towards the poor because their kindness was just a tradition. It wasn't that they actually did this regularly for the poor. So we could confidently say that God hates that kind of false worship. And on top of that, of course, they worship a false God, not the one of the Bible as God has revealed himself. But this illustration is meant to challenge us. What is our worship like to God? How do we do holidays well? Is Christmas about the incarnation of the Son of God for us? Or is it about the nostalgia? Is it about our favorite cookies and favorite hymns and songs and those things that give us the warm and fuzzies? Who could forget presents? Are we more concerned about the festival than the Christ who called us to follow him? What about the weekly holiday that we have on the Lord's Day? Right? The word holiday comes from what? Holy day. Holiday. We practice a weekly holiday on the Lord's Day. God says, do you want a day of rest? I'll give you 52, right? 52 a year. You can come and focus on me with the people of God. But when you come to the holiday of public worship, what are you looking to gain? Do you come for an experience? Churches are filled with people looking for an experience. Is it the sense that you've done your duty to God? God must accept you because I've been in church every Sunday. Is it about what you feel rather than what God receives? Do we keep up our public worship attendance because it's, it gives us a sense of righteousness? 
Right? How do I know I'm a good person? Well, I go to church. I call it the good Wisconsinite religion. I'm a good person, better than the next guy, right? Perhaps it's here too. I think it's probably everywhere. But the test of this, if our religion is true, if our faith is real, especially on the, the holy day, holiday of the Lord's day, is, is what we do when we leave. What we do with our eyes, our hands, our hearts. Are they closed off to your neighbor? When we leave public worship, are we looking to love our neighbor? See, justice and righteousness, they get talked about, at least justice does in our nation, as if, as if justice could be somehow nationally completed by some social program. No, see, justice and righteousness starts with those that we rub shoulders with in our community. It starts with seeing and standing up for our neighbors, classmates, etc. And so applying righteous living starts with loving that unlovable neighbor. Who's your unlovable neighbor? I know you can think of at least one, right? Justice, righteousness starts there in that relationship. It starts by opening up your hands, your heart, your table, your front door. If we want to reach the world, if we want to show what a righteous God is, remember Jesus Christ, the righteous, we go and we proclaim it, right? We apply these things to the people in our neighborhoods, in our city. We organize our schedules and our budgets to be able to do it. Now, I want to be really careful here in just closing out this point. I think you could hear me say, try harder or your worship doesn't count. In truth, all of our worship, public, family, private worship at home, praying and reading, all of it is intermingled with sin. You don't do any of it perfectly right. Me neither. All of it is plagued with sin. But there has been only one who has offered perfect and pure worship to God, one whose love never was divided, never is devoid, never lacking. See, though we fail to match our faith profession with our faithful expression, there was one who never failed in this. Jesus Christ, the righteous, the just. See, our faithful living looks like confessing our sin, right? Because we have sinned to confess. He didn't because he did it perfectly. And after we confess our sin, do you know what we do? We appeal to another's account. We appeal to the account who did it perfectly, who represents us before God. Yes, we strive to bring what we profess to believe and how we live closer together by the grace and spirit of God. But we must never believe that it's our perfection that makes us right before God. Does God love your worship? It's always going to be intermingled with sin. But we strive, we strive to bring right worship to him. But the base of how we come to God is in Jesus Christ alone. You plead his perfection, not your own. So we look to Jesus, the perfect one, who does not fail as Israel did, who does not fail as we do, and we plead his faithfulness, not our own. So today, acknowledge where you lack love for God and for your neighbor. It's there in you, it's there in me. And then plead the uh, the, the work and the faithfulness of Christ to God. Say, change me and make me more like your son. That justice would roll down. That righteousness would be like a flowing stream. Our final and shortest point here is in the last two verses, in 18 to 20. It carries on this theme that the Lord sees, knows how deceived, deceived our worship is. So we must truly love God, longing for him, and not the things that God can give us. 
Verse 18 tells us that Israel desires the day of the Lord to come. And it's because it's what they expect to happen on the Lord's day. They think it's going to be good for them. So what is this day that we're talking about? In the Old Testament, right, this is a judgment day on God's enemies, and this is salvation day for God's friends, in the simplest of terms. In essence, God promised a day that would come when he would reign over his people through a descendant of David, right, a king, and the enemies would be defeated forever. And so when God's people, Israel, would gather for public worship, they would sing psalms like Psalm 136, where it talks about not just Pharaoh and Egypt, but all these other kings getting decimated, right? And they would say, how great this will be on the final day when all enemies are defeated and we're prized and we get God. They think salvation is coming for them. But verses 18 through 20 are terrifying. It breaks the bad news. This is a day not of safety, not of light for you, Israel. It's a day of darkness, a day of disaster. Why? Because you are deceived in your worship. You're enemies, not friends of God. And verse 19 illustrates this. He says, imagine, right, imagine you're walking through the woods and come across a lion. There's not the woods part there, but you come across a lion, you escape, only to then get devoured by a bear. All right, or you come in away from maybe said bear, only to get bit by a poisonous snake in your home and die. He's saying, in essence, your judgment is going to fi- find you out until, unless you stop with the divided, devoid worship of me. It's sure, is what God is saying to Israel, unless you change, or unless you turn to me from the heart. So for any of you who have played the classic board game Monopoly, you know that one of those cards that's really important early in the game is the get-out-of-jail-free card, right? Because it allows you to stay out and buy more stuff, right? Get the property you want. I remember, though, once uh, coming across a bumper sticker with that Monopoly guy springing out, right, from jail. And it said John 3.16 on it. Right? You know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, gave his one only son, whoever believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. And on that little bumper sticker it said, get-out-of-hell-free card. You see, Israel thought, I'll come back to this, Israel thought we are God's people, right? We have the ultimate get-out-of-judgment-free card, right? Because God made a covenant with us. But Israel thought that they could be divided in worship, devoid of love for God and neighbor, and yet belong to God. Professing Christians need to hear the message of Amos 5. This message is for us this morning who are gathering in public worship spaces across this city and the nation, right? Amos's message is not for the non-believing people out there, at least in this part of Amos. It's for the people who read the Bible, who come to public worship, who sing songs about and to God. Why? He's challenging us. Do you believe in God for the sake of the destruction of your enemies? For the sake of what you think you'll get in heaven? Is that what you believe it for? For the sake of a get-out-of-hell-free card? Or do you love, or, do, or rather, do you believe it because you actually want God? You actually love God. He's the prize. And do you love the things that God loves? People. See, if the best thing about the day of the Lord and about heaven is being away from all those sinners on earth, on whatever, whatever party they're in or whatever television newscasting thing they're a part of or whatever it might be, being away from all those sinners out there, you perhaps have believed in the bumper sticker gospel. 
right? I believe in it just to get out of hell. But heaven without God is not heaven. Worship without love for God and neighbor are not worship. That's what Amos is hitting home. Israel, if they're deceived in their worship, they were, they were doing one thing right. It says they desired the day of the Lord. They wanted that day to come. It's a good desire. And the Bible ends in this way, where Jesus is saying, I am coming soon. And John says, let it be so. Let it be so. Come soon, please, Lord Jesus. That's a good longing for us who love, for you who love Jesus, who love God. Paul in 1 Corinthians, as he's trying to convince the Corinthians that Jesus actually resurrected from the grave and how necessary this is for their Christian faith, he says this, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Oftentimes, Christians, we will talk about a cross and an empty tomb or Jesus where he died and he rose again and we say, my hope is complete because that happened back there. Yes, it is. We look to that. But this is what Israel, in that hope, is doing right, is whatever has happened and what Christ has accomplished is meant for us to look out that way. It's to actually look to the day of the Lord and to long for it, to say there is a day coming. We hope not just in this life for it to come, but but for it to be out there, that we'd actually experience it, that we'll see it. The gospel is made finally and fully real there. We mustn't only hope in Christ in this life, but we look ahead to that day with longing. And we don't look at that day for longing because we're pleading our own righteousness to God. Look how righteous I am. I should, be in that, I should be there on that day of the Lord. No, we say, there is another. There is another who came for me. So today, if you have not trusted in Christ, perhaps you're hearing this and you're thinking, yes, the Christians are getting it. <laughs> right? All those hypocrites that I know who call themselves Christians are getting it, being tested. You too. The day of the Lord is darkness for you if you have not trusted in Christ. He came for you the same as he came for those who have trusted in him. If you will trust in him, he came for you, that is. But for you who profess Christ, examine your heart. By the grace and spirit of God, examine your heart. We don't believe in the Bible. We don't believe in God, the triune God, just for a get-out-of-hell-free card. We don't want to just slip that one in our back pocket and go about our lives. That's not what this is about. We want to be with God. That's the heart of our Christian faith. Do you want God? We worship rightly when being with God is the aim. We worship rightly when we love our neighbors that God has given to us. So, God sees your worship truly. So truly, love God and love your neighbor by his grace. And when we do so, we can look forward to that day, as Israel rightly did. We can look forward to it without being deceived. Right, with real true longing. I want to close with just one of the most famous parables in the New Testament. It's from Luke 15, right, of the prodigal son. And this is we see God's heart. What does God want? Right, your desire is to be with him. What's God want? In that story, right, there's a father, a rich father with two sons. The younger son says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me all my inheritance. And the father does it, and he goes. And he spends it wildly in shameful ways, and he's starving and dying. And he says, I'm going to go back and say, Dad, don't treat me like a son. Treat me like a slave, because at least I'll get food. At least I'll have warmth. And as he heads back, what happens? The father is clearly waiting for him and watching for him because the father sees him and runs. Something shameful for the uh, uh, father in that time to have done. Runs to his son, forgives his rebel son, and accepts him home. 
It's interesting about how that story ends is there's the other brother, right? The elder brother. He doesn't even go into the party. Instead, he's outside angry, and the father again goes to him, right? And what does the older brother say? He said, I've been here the whole time. I've obeyed you, and you didn't give me anything. You didn't give me anything. What does the father say? He says, son, you are always with me. Yes, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. You see, the thing about that story is that both the younger son and the elder son didn't want the father. They wanted the father's things. They just had different strategies of how to get it. But what did the father want? You. He wanted his sons. He said, you are always with me. Israel and the elder son wanted the father's things. What does God want? Certainly to be glorified and to be enjoyed because he's given it us all, but part of God's glory being full or fully seen on earth is what does he get? He gets you if you trust in the one who came for you, the real son, right? The real son. So because the Lord sees how true our worship is, we must truly love God and our neighbor, not just talk or look like we do. Because he is the God who wants to be with us, we can ask him to examine our hearts. Lord, ensure that we are not deceived. Take away all of our other loves so that we love you. And he can show us where we are devoid of loving him and our neighbor, where we focus on ourselves, where we're divided. Today, ask God to unite your heart in love. It's a work that only he can do, and he did perfectly as Christ. Ask God to make you not devoid, but rather full, full of the love of the one who came, who lived, died, and rose again for you. And together, together, we can look forward to that day that is coming, the day of the Lord, which will be light, which will be salvation. Let's look to that day together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so quickly deceived, and we so quickly try to hold up things to justify or show ourselves as righteous, just, or worthy of being loved. And the truth is that you have loved us wholly and completely, and you have done so and shown it through the real Son coming to die for us, to represent us before you, God. And so, God, we come not with perfection in all of our works, in our hearts, in our hands. No, we come pleading the perfection of Christ. And we pray, have mercy on us. Unite our hearts to fear you, to love you, and to worship you in spirit and in truth. God, do the work that only you can do in us. We look to you, the one who loved us first. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.